Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson vill jag så bra som mig. Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores! Karlsson, Karlsson! Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by a guy who's going to be up super late tonight, setting up round two of the Keeping Carlson playoff pool. Man, the NHL can't give us like one day in between rounds just to help me out. Oh, well, what are you going to do? All right, so I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky. I've got another beat writer interview for you today. It's going to be an awesome one because I'll be talking with Harmon Dial for the third season in a row about the Vancouver Canucks. I have a lot of uh, good questions for Harmon that I'm very excited to hear the answers to. Uh, so this is definitely going to be a great interview. He's always awesome. Uh, before we get to that, uh, let me first of all mention the Keeping Carlson very proudly presented by DauberHockey.com. It's so awesome to be able to say that all the time. And they are the number one site for fantasy. So check them out for all the articles throughout the playoffs. They're looking at the fantasy impacts just like we try to do on the podcast also the tools of frozen tools are awesome so that's dobberhockey.com also special note to our patrons uh this wednesday is patron cast day always excited for that day every month where we do a bonus show just for the patrons it's a live show if you want to come join us and we answer any questions that the patrons throw at us we have never not answered a question that came our way and we don't plan to start on wednesday so super excited for that uh, throw your questions into the patron cast question section on Discord. And if you're not a patron, we do have our $1 promotion over the summer. So you could, for nothing, for a cup of coffee in, I don't know, 1990, you can become a patron, keeping Carlson for the summer, join our community, hang out for the patron cast, and, and see what you think. Uh, but with that, I'm going to cut over to my interview with Harmon Dial about the Canucks. Enjoy. All right, everybody, super excited for this uh, beat writer interview that we've got for you today. Once again, I am joined by Harmon Dial, uh, uh, the beat writer for The Athletic for the Vancouver Canucks. It's our third year in a row. Welcome to Keeping Carlson. Harmon, glad you've decided to come back to help complete the trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. Glad you uh, invited me back. Yeah, I was just listening to our interview that we did last year. It was a lot of fun. Uh, that, that was a season where the Canucks were coming off a year where things went terribly wrong. Like the year before, they were in the playoffs doing really well. And then two seasons ago now, they you know came last in the North Division, the All-Canada Division. It was like quite a disappointment. And then you know we talked all about what we were expecting for this season. And you, know, you said that you expected them to maybe be a little bit better. And they were. It was a pretty decent season for the Canucks, right? They ranked fifth in their division, five points behind Nashville, who you know landed that last playoff spot. And if you look more carefully, though, at like the schedule and the actual games, uh, which ones they won and which ones they lost, they pretty much like fell out of the playoffs at the start of the year, right? They limped out of the gate to the tune of a 7-14-2 record at the end of November, and then they fired Travis Green, brought in Boost Boudreaux, and after that, the Canucks were like a whole different team. They went on a seven-game winning streak. Uh, they also had a big streak at the end of April or in the middle of April. Like, what do you think was the reason for the slow start, and what was it that Boudreaux did to trigger the turnaround starting in December? Or am I giving Boudreaux too much credit? No, I think the first 25 games for sure was where the club dug itself way too deep of a hole. And by the time Boudreaux had kind of taken over, it was going to be a monumental task to get back into the playoff picture. So when I look at what went wrong in the first 25 games, for me, it was special teams is the biggest factor. Because if you look at the, besides just the record you mentioned, 
What's interesting is that at five on five, I think the Canucks were maybe minus one during that uh, stretch in terms of goal differentials. They were, so they were actually holding their own at even strength. The problem is both of their special teams were abysmal with the penalty kill. I think it was clicking in the, in the mid 60% range. Uh, and it felt like every game they were just uh, giving up a back-breaking power play goal. And conversely, um, when it came to their power play, a group that two years ago was top five in the NHL, they, for whatever reason, uh, just weren't able to execute. They weren't able to find the back of the net. And so what you had in the first 25 games was the team was losing a lot of one-goal hockey games where they'd be fine. They'd be playing five, fine at five on five, but then they'd have a back-breaking penalty kill against, and then they wouldn't be able to convert on the power play to kind of get it back. And right. uh, so when Boudreaux took over, I think the there are a few different areas where he was able to make an impact. Number one was the team's overall system and um, trying to lean towards more of an offensive free-flowing style with an aggressive forecheck. And that was originally what Travis Green um, preferred in terms of his style for most of his seasons. But I think um, after the way the North Division year went, I think Green and management looked at the roster and said, we need to tighten up defensively. And so they committed to a more conservative style. And again, at five on five, it actually wasn't the worst. Um, And they did certainly limit uh, chances off the rush a lot better, but it also stifled their offensive creativity. And I think when Boudreaux came, that free-flowing offensive style suits this uh, roster strengths um, where... I think the team is now playing to its strengths rather than its weaknesses, right? Because they want to play this defensive style. I don't think they, they're not the New York Islanders where they have a lot of uh, smart, intelligent two way uh, defensive players. They're a team that uh, is definitely more offensively inclined. So I think that helped. And then obviously under Boudreaux, the team's power play started producing again, the first unit got going um, and sort of started playing up to its potential. And then through, uh, through a series of changes on penalty kill, they were able to shore that up as well, which I think was the biggest factor in the turnaround. Um, And in terms of how that penalty kill improvement happened, I think a few decisions sort of loom large. For one, they turned up the aggressiveness of their PK4 check, which um, helped them to spend less time defending in their own zone. And then Boudreaux also gave penalty kill opportunities to the likes of Elias Pedersen and Quinn Hughes, who turned out to be really strong fits in that role. They barely got scored on and that and, and it actually sort of introduced a counterattack threat to Vancouver's penalty kill, where now if the opposition power play messed up, you would have sort of Penderson busting down uh, the other way down the ice and ready to create chances. So I think under Boudreaux, it's they got back to playing a style of hockey that better suits their roster at five and five. The power play started improving, the penalty kill started improving. And I think he was just able to uh, pick the club back up after the vibes were just really bad uh, f- from the first 25 games. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like just a, a crazy turnaround and it's super impressive. I wonder what it feels like to be Travis Green and like be doing so badly and then all of a sudden have someone else come in and like totally turn the team around. Um, I don't know. I, I guess the similar things have happened like with Pittsburgh. I remember that year that they won the cup a few years ago and then it was like they were terrible and then they switched coaches. Do you think if Boudreaux was the coach from the start of the season, the Canucks would have been a playoff team? Like all they would have had to do is go like 500 for those first 25 games and that would have been enough. Yeah, I think so. I think there's a decent, decent shot going into the season. I kind of looked at the playoffs as a 50, 50 coin flip. And 
I, I sort of, I, in my preseason article, I predicted that, that they would just miss the playoffs, but it was close enough um, when you looked at the roster that, that they were always going to be this bubble team. And w- with Boudreaux, I think we saw that clearly he's able to maximize uh, what this roster has offensively. Uh, he was able to get a lot out of individual players when you look at how uh, Elias Pettersson performed in the second half of the season how Brock Besser performed in the second half of the season, uh, the sort of uh, increase in production that you almost saw across the board from a lot of the players. Uh, and as a result, I, I do think that uh, they would have, they would have uh, made the playoffs because as you mentioned, they only would have needed to go uh, 500 at that point through the first 25 games to make up uh, the difference needed to clinch a playoff spot. Yeah, so I guess next year we'll see if uh, they can get over that hump. Uh, They have most of the same players, and we'll talk about a bunch of them in this episode. Like one key contributor to the Canucks success was this emergence of JT Miller as like this true like star in the league. And like, don't get me wrong, Miller has been good for a while. He had like 86 and 71 point pace seasons in his first two seasons in Vancouver, but it seemed like he found a whole other gear this past year. It was his age 28 season, and he had 32 goals and 67 assists for 99 points. He also had a higher time on ice than ever before he broke the 200 shot barrier for the first time in his career and it's interesting because when i was listening to our interview from last year i was like concerned about an article that you wrote about how he might end up as the third line center and i was thinking oh maybe he'll have like lower point totals if he's gonna have to take on that role uh clearly that did not happen and i've got to ask do you think what we saw out of miller this year was for real like i've been thinking of him as like someone with kind of like a Brad Marchand-esque career trajectory potential. Like, you know, like I remember Marchand put up solid numbers for the first like six, seven years of his career. Then he exploded and became like a hundred point player, you know, when he was already deep into his twenties and now, you know, to early to mid thirties. Is that what we're seeing out of JT Miller right now? Or do you think this was just like the most amazing year and there's no way it could happen again? I definitely believe that Miller can be a sort of point per game type player in terms of flirting with hundred points. I don't think that that's something you're going to get year in and year out. I think it's a matter of a guy sort of having a career year and he sort of, he effectively became Vancouver's de facto first line centerman just because of the slow start Elias Pettersson had and how he was now all of a sudden playing the sort of minutes that you'd playing sort of minutes and matchups you'd more typically associate with a middle six centerman. So uh, for starters, I think the role that Miller had in um, when you look at how many minutes he played as well, uh, I remember on the midseason mark, only McDavid and Drysettle uh, were averaging more minutes among forwards. I'm sure that that may have changed uh, towards the end of the season. But uh, the point too uh, is for as strong as Miller played, I don't think that he's going to be the sort of player that, is going to be top three or top five in, in time on ice a year in and year out as well. Um, and you look, and so f- the point I'm trying to make there is I think as Pedersen rebounds, the team's not going to need to sort of have Miller chew up all, chew up five and five minutes as aggressively as he did. And I think there is a sort of middle ground too, where that can um, optimize Miller's two way impact because quietly down the stretch, I think what we noticed was. Uh, the points were coming, but as a result of just playing so often and, and, and having that fatigue and that pressure to create night in and night out, you also saw some defensive mishaps here and there in terms of his puck management, sometimes um, undisciplined penalties or issues on the back check. And I think ideally Miller is the sort of player that is closer to averaging around 19 to 20 minutes a night. And that way he can play a more complete game. 
Um, there would be less burden on him. And, and so in that sort of scenario, yeah, he would probably as a result of slightly lesser opportunity, be closer to a point per game type player. But in terms of, in terms of his overall two way impact, I think it would benefit his game um, to clean up on the puck management, to have gas left in the tank, to be able to back check. And so I think he I, I was actually leaned on a little bit too much, even though um, he had a fantastic season. And so I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is Miller's a fantastic player. He's out, absolutely this team's offensive leader. The power play runs through him. And um, I have no question that he can be one of the NHL's top playmakers, but it felt like this was a perfect storm in terms of um, the point totals and, and kind of flirting with, uh, with 100 there. Right. So it's kind of like for in terms of people who have him on their fantasy teams, they would want him to just get all these offensive opportunities all the time. You're saying as a Canucks fan, maybe you actually want him to get fewer points because that'll help him be an overall like more uh, like impactful player for the team, maybe playing fewer minutes. I'm seeing he he ranked sixth among forwards by the end of the season, uh, averaging 21 yeah. minutes and eight seconds. So yeah, right up there with the elite of the league. Uh, so okay, I, I've got Miller in one of my uh, dynasty leagues. So I guess I'm a little bit disappointed to hear that. But hey, I'll still take it. He's like so great, like even at a point per game with all his hits and like uh, face-offs. Sometimes, like, you know, he, he's just like the total package. Uh, of course, the player we expected to be the team's leading scorer going into the season, or at least that I did. I don't know, you can tell me if you disagree. Like I assumed that Elias Pettersson was going to be the you know offensive leader on the team. I, it's interesting that you say that Miller sort of taken that mantle. But for the second season in a row, like Pettersson started off super slow. This season only 17 points in his first 37 games, like you alluded to. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of January, Pettersson like flipped a switch. I guess a lot like the Canucks, uh, except they did that earlier. But like Pettersson in January uh, scored two goals against the Caps, and then after that, never slowed down again. He put up 51 points in his final 43 games. So it's basically we saw two different players in the first half and second half for Elias Pettersson. Last year, when I asked about his slump to start the season, you said that it was just a kind of an eight-game blip, nothing to read much into. But I can't imagine you're going to say that this time because it took Pettersson, you know, three months to get going. So do you have any sense of what was wrong with him at the start of the year and and what changed for that torrid run in the second half? Yeah, I think it was a perfect storm of a few factors. For one, he was just coming off of... uh, wrist uh wrist uh in the, the wrist injury he had and um having missed the entire second half of the 2021 right, of uh bubble year and so anytime you're coming back from an injury and Pedersen admitted uh later on in the season well, once he had overcome that hurdle and once he was back lightning the lamp that maybe it affected him a bit in the early part of the season and then I also think what made things worse was the fact that he missed training camp uh, because it was ongoing uh, contract negotiation, um, him and uh, him and Hughes and, and Hughes didn't didn't miss a beat, but that was different for him because he wasn't coming back from an injury. And Hughes is just the type of player who he always has his skating legs, and his game isn't as reliant on timing and rhythm as Pedersen's is. And so for Hughes, it's just easy to kind of hit hit the ground running. Whereas I think for Pedersen still trying to come back from that injury and then, and then not having that uh, slow ramp up that you typically get through training camp and preseason. I think it just put him in a tough position to start. And then once you start the season slow and you haven't played in a long, a long time and your wrist still isn't maybe hundred percent, that's where I think confidence really became an issue. And um, that's when he started to second guess himself offensively started to second guess his ability to carry the puck through the neutral zone. Uh, He was uncharacteristically 
bobbling pucks um, when when carrying it. And that was one of the oddest things to see is, is I think with Pedersen, one of the biggest strengths of his game is that he's able to stick handle through high traffic areas um, and keep the puck on a string and have that precision um, in elite hands. And it just felt like the puck was a grenade the way he was handling it in his first touch, which is completely off. And to me, again, that just comes down to confidence. That comes down to rhythm. That comes down to timing. And then I think once you had the coaching change and the fresh start, I think he was able to finally produce a little bit, get the confidence back uh, back under him. And then he just started to feel like himself again. And that's kind of why you saw him go off in the second half. So it sounds like you're saying that like we should be believing that the second half Elias Patterson is the real one. The first one, you, it sound, there's lots of good reasons why he had that slow start, like I said, the injury and the contract negotiations keeping him out of training camp. Uh, so do you think that going into next season, he can finally have his first season in a while where he's just good all the way through? Like if you had to pick now, who's going to have more points next year between Patterson and Miller, assuming they both play the full season, who would you pick? That's a really good question. I honestly hadn't thought about that. I'd now uh, that, that would take me a deep dive. I'm hesitant <laughs> to to give it to give a, a name right off the top like that. But I think with Pedersen, it's interesting because the second half is the peak version of him, where not only was it the point production and being well over a point per game, which I think has always been a reasonable expectation for him in terms of what he can produce when he's at the top of his game is sort of that point per game uh, mark and, and being able to eclipse it. But it was also the two-way impact and how he was able to drive the bus for his line and um, create zone exits, create zone entries, have a strong defensive impact, be uh, a step ahead of the opposition in coming back on the back check and anticipating plays. And I think when he's at his best, the ceiling that everyone's always thought with him is could he be a Pavel Datsuk type player where he's slick, he's smooth. He's maybe not going to be in the Art Ross, uh, Art Ross trophy race uh, on a year in and year out basis, but he's still, when you combine the offensive production with the two-way value, uh, a really impressive first line centerman. And I think that's sort of the hope and expectation. And we saw that in the second half, but we've also never seen him sustain it over a full season. Um, when you think about his rookie season, and obviously that was him as a rookie, he slowed down in the second half, and that was, of course, I think largely due to fatigue. 2019-20, I think, was the closest we've seen to the most refined version of, refined, most consistent version of Pedersen. And I think that's still his best season to date, in my opinion, in terms of um, how he's looked. So I think that's a sort of template that you'd be hoping he can model his game after but then obviously 2021 wasn't uh, a good year from an injury riddled one. And then this year uh, he had the really slow uh, first half. So Pedersen has him, has it in him. He has the potential to be the type of uh, player that he was in the second half on a full season basis, but he has to show that he can actually do it. And I think that's going to be the challenge going into uh, next season is he has to now prove to himself, to his teammates, to new management as well, that he can be a superstar on a full 82 game basis and not just be a superstar for half a season. And, and I think he has it in him personally. And I think it's really important that he had the strong second half. That way he goes into the off season, goes into training camp um, with confidence, with inner belief and knowing what his potential is. And, and hopefully that can motivate him to work his tail off and uh, mm -hmm. take that next step. 
but it's going to be interesting to see if he can sustain that level of performance over a full 82-game season. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to put words in your mouth. It sounds like you're kind of saying that like Pedersen maybe has the higher ceiling than Miller, but Miller has maybe a higher floor since he's shown that he can be consistent all season through and like Pedersen still kind of has to prove that. Yeah, I think that's a good way of uh, I think that's a good way of putting it for sure. All right, so let's finish this happy part of the interview before we transition to some players that disappointed us, maybe some moves that might have disappointed us. I've been reading some of your articles, but on the happy side, Quinn Hughes also had a really great season. You predicted last year that you thought he would bounce back from a season where his two-way play wasn't the best, and and he definitely did, and also he improved his offensive numbers, right? He went from being a 60 to 65-point pace defenseman for his first two seasons to a 70-plus point pace guy. He had 68 points in 76 games. He also upped his shot counts to two per game. He saw a huge increase in time on ice which I guess is explained by all the extra shorthanded time that you were talking about. Uh, last year, you said, like, yeah, you had no concerns with his offensive potential. You talked about how his two-way game had taken a step back in, in his sophomore season. I've spoiled the answer for myself because since I read uh, your nine takeaways article at the end of the season, but I'll ask anyway, like, offensive side, like, uh, did you like what you saw out of Hughes this season? Like, do you think he's back to being the elite defenseman? He was looking like he had the potential to be in his rookie year. 100%. His two-way game was as polished as it was in his rookie campaign, where uh, that's when we first looked at him and and thought to ourselves, he could be more than just an offensive defenseman. And you mentioned the huge time on ice increase, uh, largely stemming from his penalty-killing impact. Who would have thought a year ago that Quinn Hughes would be killing penalties and excelling in that role? And Bruce Boudreaux mentioned that he sees him as a long-term fit there, given how well he recovers pucks um, and that uh, mobility and quickness to when there's a rebound and there's an opportunity to retrieve a, a puck and get it down the ice on the PK. Uh, Hughes has that uh, knack for being first on the puck and uh, he has that value there and he has the anticipation and he's always had the smarts. So it's not too much of a surprise that he's uh, excelled there, but definitely sh- surprised, I think, in, in, in how well he's handled the shorthanded minutes. But also at five on five, he cut down a lot of his puck management mistakes. He was typically very clean with uh, with managing the puck and limiting turnovers. He rarely got caught pinching in the wrong situations like he maybe did at times um, the year before. He uh, was just really dependable, really complete. Uh, there were very few defensive mistakes. And I think the most impressive part about the campaign that he had was the carousel of uh, D partners that he had, because in his rookie season, he had the benefit of being able to play alongside Chris Tanev, who's a defensive savant who um, at this point, given how well he's fared in Calgary has, has developed a league wide reputation of being able to settle young defenders and be that uh, reliable safety net for, for, uh, for them. He just didn't have that safety net this year. He was playing minutes sometimes with Pullman, sometimes with Hamnick and, and towards the end, um, Shen ended up being his uh, stable partner, but none of those guys, for as well as Luke Shen played, are genuine top four caliber defensemen. So the fact that Hughes was able to have one of his best two A seasons, um, I guess one of his best two A seasons doesn't mean a lot when he's only three years into the league, maybe. But um, he was he tilted the ice. The shot shot and scoring chance metrics were strong. Um, limited attempts against uh, the fact that he managed all of that despite not having a high-end partner next to him. To me, it was uh, a smashing success of the season for him. 
Yeah, that's interesting because we talked about uh, when in my interview with Murata Tesh about the Jets, we were talking about Josh Morrissey and how he like sort of did a lot better when he had a you know better defensive partner with him. It sounds like you're saying like Quinn Hughes didn't even necessarily need that to have this like amazing season. What a gem the Canucks got seventh overall back in 2018. There's a lot of teams that are kicking themselves. I guess specifically uh, Montreal, Arizona, and Detroit who definitely probably would want to redo at this point and get Quinn Hughes. Uh, so I now, like I said, we have to switch over to the players and, and things that happened that led to the Canucks maybe not making the playoffs. We'll get to that in just a sec. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. This episode of Keeping Carlson is brought to you in part once again by our friends over at HelloFresh. That's right. The meal kit that makes dinners really fun and affordable for everyone that uses it. Uh, you know, if you're listening to this Beat Writer interview series that we've been doing, we've been getting the best of the best to talk about all the NHL teams. So why not get the best of the best of these meal kits that you can eat, like wholesome, healthy, and delicious meals that are delivered right to your doorstep. Uh, HelloFresh is also not going to break the bank, okay? It's 72% cheaper than dining at a restaurant, even cheaper than grocery shopping. That's money back in your pocket, according to a Zagat Dining Survey. Uh, their newest menu release includes like Mediterranean recipes that are filled with fresh fruits and veggies, nuts, olives, oils, and fiber-packed whole grains for nourishing balance. They have a whole bunch of different actually types of meal packages you can get. You know, vegetarian, family-friendly, uh, I'm sure just regular old meat-friendly meals. And it's always a blast when I get my box of HelloFresh delivered. I know that my wife and I are going to eat well. She's going to be impressed with me that I'm able to make food that's as impressive looking and tasty as it is. I'm definitely not as good of a cook as I am at playing fantasy hockey, but that doesn't stop me from being able to deliver with these meals since it's super easy. They give like really clear instructions with pictures and all the ingredients are right there pre-portioned. It's awesome. So definitely you should be checking out HelloFresh, especially if you haven't yet, because you can get a special offer as a listener of Keeping Carlson. If you go to HelloFresh.com slash KeepingK16 and then use code KeepingK16, you'll get 16 free meals and three free gifts. You're getting this for free. So, so why the heck not, right? So once again, HelloFresh.com slash KeepingK16 and use code KeepingK16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Check it out. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Also available in Canada. Not sure about in Sweden, where Eric Carlson would be ordering his meal kits if he lives there. I don't know. Where does Eric Carlson live right now? In San Jose? Definitely not in Ottawa, right? Anyways, back to the show. All right, we are back with Harmon Dial talking about the Vancouver Canucks. And like I said, I want to talk about something that uh, you've written articles about and I got the sense you weren't a fan of right from the start. And that was the big trade last summer. Uh, it's kind of funny, also maybe a little depressing, like listening back to our interview from last year, which uh, people should check out. It was really good. Uh, but yeah, so you, we were talking about Braden Holtby, who at the time had a year left in his contract and you were saying how they shouldn't buy him out. You were saying like... Uh, the this is before they did buy him out. And you were saying that they'll actually be in such a good spot cap-wise in 2022-23 because, you know, Beagle and Erickson will be coming off the books. So why, like, mess th that up by, like, having this, like, Holtby buyout that's, that would now be on the books for, like, around $2 million. And so and then we also, later on in the interview, we talked about how exciting this, like, upcoming ninth overall pick would be and you rhymed off some potential appealing options that you'd be excited about. Uh, clearly, the Canucks went in a very different direction than what 
what you were speculating about in, in that interview last year. Not only did they buy out Holtby, they also decided to get rid of those contracts in a different way by trading away Ericsson, Beagle, Roussel, that first, uh, and then also a 2022 second and a 2023 uh, seventh for Oliver ekman Larson and Connor Garland. So now instead of being like, out of these types of contracts by now. They've got Oliver ekman Larson, who still has five years left at 8.25 million per year, minus the like around million that Arizona retained, along with that Holpe buyout for next year. And then they also extended Garland for five years at almost 5 million per year. They also traded for Jason Dickinson, who has three years left at 2.65 million. So before we get, like I got a whole bunch of players I want to ask you about, obviously, that I just listed off. I'm just curious to get your take. Like, what do you think of all these moves from the Canucks in the offseason and how that set them up for the future? Well, Jim Benning, honestly, just made those win now moves to try and save his job, to be totally honest with you, is, is kind of my impression. And it's not necessarily his fault because I think any GM in his shoes would have felt the pressure of, I've, ha- I've had six, seven, eight years on the job now, and we've only made the playoffs one, or twice in my tenure. And, and the first time was in uh, his very first uh, season in 2014, 2015. So, um, it's been uh, a lack. Uh, it's been a long time since they had uh, really put together a winner, and we saw how they finished uh, the 2021 campaign last in the, nor- in the North Division. So I think any GM in uh, Benning shoes would have recognized that this is my last shot, and I'm going to do anything I can to make the playoffs. And unfortunately, that meant mortgaging uh, cap space uh, and draft picks for players to try and uh, help and, and win now to make the playoffs. And that's where when you look at the Oliver ekman larson Connor Garland trade, that one stings now because for as well as Oliver ekman larson and Connor Garland have fit into this Canucks team and provided value now, the long-term ramifications of that deal are, 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 are hard to, to deal with. You consider ekman larson and yeah, he was a strong second pair contributor for the team, but when you're making 7.25 million, you're getting paid to be a number one defenseman at the, at the very least be a high, high end number two defenseman. And OEL um, just isn't that right now. He's already an efficient captain and, and more problem. The, the bigger risk there is how is he going to look as he get as he gets deeper into his thirties? Right. Of course. Uh, so there's that part of it. And then it's, it's really the simple, would you rather have Ekman Larson at, 7.26 million for another five years and uh and and Connor Garland or at this stage would you rather have um that ninth overall pick uh the second round pick the seventh round pick um and around 12 plus million dollars in cap space I think um it's a pretty easy answer in terms of the latter when you consider uh where the club's prospect pipeline is right now and how how outside of Jack Rathbone the team lacks um uh, high-end blue chip prospects and, and how they could have really used that top 10 pick. Um, they're obviously without that second uh, this year. And the other thing that uh, people have to kind of keep in mind is the quickest, one of the quickest ways to improve your team um, it, it actually is the, the draft picks and, um, and cap flexibility. So if, if you consider an alternate timeline where the Canucks had had just kept Beagle and Roussel and Erickson. And I mean, they missed the playoffs anyway. So it, it for, for they pushed all their chips in, it didn't even pay off. Uh, so I think that's the part that stings the most, but um, if they had just 
stayed the course, they would have had all this money coming off the books and they would have then had um, assets and draft picks that they could actually then um, like it would make more, it would have made way more sense to go all in this off season as opposed to last off season, because it actually makes sense based off of what other contracts you have on the books. And that's where you would have had opportunities. I mean, uh, look at how Colorado two years ago saw a team in uh, the New York, New York Islanders that was in distress and picked up uh, Devin Taves for, for what was it, two second round picks? Taves is is in uh, one of the, an elite top pair defenseman in his own right right He's now. incredible. Playing alongside uh, Kale McCarr. Um, they did, and that was an opportunity that they could only take advantage of because they had A, cap space, and because they had B, draft picks. Um, you look at uh, St. Louis uh, this past offseason with Pavel Buchnevich. Buchnevich was around a point per game contributor for them, big body, two-way presence, everything. They were able to get him for pennies on the dollar. I think they gave up Sammy Blay in a second round pick um, just because New York couldn't afford him cap wise. And because guess what? St. Louis had a cap space and B draft picks. So those are the types of opportunities that the Canucks would have this off season been able to take advantage of if they had just kept the, if they had just stayed the course and, and uh, retained their draft picks, retained their cap flexibility as opposed to, uh, pushing all those chips in for OEL and Garland. And uh, so that's where that that trade uh, definitely stings. Even though, again, Garland, I love Connor Garland as a player. I think he his season was, uh, was quite underrated, and I like his contract. I like his long-term fit. But um, the OEL contract is just one that uh, that is going to be tough to navigate around uh, as the team tries to construct a contender and, trying to come to terms with having a second pair defender who's making uh, over $7 million. Right. Yeah. I, I'm curious, like, cause I, I remember you were like critical of the move at the time, like just listening back on the interview it was like so obvious uh, this like plan, like you, you outlined everything you just told me now you like outlined it all last year. You should have just been hired as the GM at that point. But like, how does it work? Like just like Jim Benning, if everyone knows that he's just being desperate and trying to save his job, are, are there no fail safes in place? Or I guess there must've been like some other people that, allowed him to do this i'm just curious like if, maybe you don't even know but like how does like sure. w- yeah like like you're saying if a gm like knows that he has to make the playoffs next year or he's going to get fired isn't that someone that you can't trust their judgment to have like long-term you know like caring about the long-term effects of the team 100 percent. and this is where ownership's responsible for the way the offseason went and not not necessarily jim benning because again if you put me in that in, in that situation you put anyone they're obviously going to be incentivized to try and and keep their job right and yeah, of course and with their livelihood and so for me that falls on ownership in terms of not recognizing the um, conflicting incentives of the GM situation and the and the and the team's long term health but I also think ownership themselves they were eager to try and get back on track as quickly as possible. And I think ownership displayed a lack of patience as well. So for me, hundred percent, they bear a lot of the responsibility. They, in my opinion, bear more responsibility for how last off season went than management themselves. Because frankly, after the way the uh, 2021 season went in the bubble in the North division, uh, Jim Benning should have been let go then. And quite clearly given the way the first 25 games went, I think that was the time that they should have cleared management. They, they should have um, overhauled the coaching staff. They should have just cleaned house completely and, and reset things. And if they had gone down that path, instead of desperately trying to um, 
save face and, and feel the playoff team one more time, the, the team would have been in a much better position to actually construct an elite contender because don't get me wrong. There are tons of uh, bright spots with this team. There's a lot of uh, really exciting foundational pieces in place and with the right management group and enough patience, absolutely. You can turn this into a cup contending team, but it's a lot trickier of a situation to navigate because of um, how they pushed all their chips in for last season. Yeah, exactly. Like they still, yeah, we've been talking about all these exciting players on the team. Like they could still do well, but they could have maybe been in a better situation. But anyways, let's talk about some of these like individual players. Uh, Like uh, uh, one thing that we discussed in the last year's interview is you were basically saying that the Canucks need to have improved D in order to like be a better team. And you were kind of saying that, you know, we need like Quinn Hughes to be better. And he held up his end of the bargain like we've discussed. Uh, Then you also talked about how maybe like a Nate Schmidt would need to be better. And obviously that ended up like, you know, he ended up getting traded. And then also you were saying that someone like Jack Rathbone would have to step up and he ended up not uh, making the team. But of course, they brought in Oliver Ekman Larson and you just said how he was a decent enough second pair defenseman overall. Like offensively, he had like his worst offensive numbers of his career, only like 29 points in 79 games. Maybe part of that is just due to him like not having the power play role that he used to have in Arizona. Like, is there... Uh, any silver lining here in terms of OEL's defensive contributions? Like, just to get a general base on, like, how good was he this year? I guess you're also saying that he's probably going to decline as he gets deeper into his 30s. But, like, how good of a player is he right now? Or how did he look last year? Yeah, he was a really effective contributor. He took on uh, the toughest matchups alongside uh, Tyler Myers. And like you mentioned, the offense wasn't there. But his uh, defensive impact in terms of being able to suppress shots and chances against was among, uh, was among the best uh, impact he's had in his career. He defended the rush really well. His game was just bred on efficiency, I think, in, in terms of both with and without the puck. Uh, without the puck, he seemed to angle players, I think, really well defensively, funnel them to the outside, uh, use his active stick to break plays up. He's obviously got a long reach, and I think he excelled as a one-on-one defender. There were moments where he'd maybe get caught uh, up the ice offensively and there'd be an odd man rush against, which would lead to uh, and, uh, lead to uh, a goal against here, here or there. But overall, I think his defensive game was really strong. And that absolutely, I think, is, a, is at least something uh, of a silver line where uh, he bounced back and was uh, a legit top four contributor. And when Quinn Hughes was uh, out of lineup on occasion due to injury or whatever, he uh, he was able to show a little bit more offensively as well. So to me, OEL was kind of able to, uh, as he was almost like a, a left-handed Chris Tanev in um, the way that he was able to impact the game. And obviously not to that, that degree where OEL had a little bit more offense and he was a little bit more offense to offer compared to Tanev. And Tanev was a little bit better defensively. And there are obviously big stylistic differences in how they play. But if you're talking about the, the type of presence a player brings um, and the type of impact that they were able to each sort of make at, uh, at five on five, I think OEL was able to bring some of the defensive qualities uh, to the second pair that they had kind of missed when Tanev had, uh, had departed. So uh, that's where he was able to make a, a strong uh, impact. And again, I think that's at least a silver lining. 
Yeah, okay. So hopefully he can just hold up and be the same again next year. And that'll obviously help take a little bit of the sting off of the contract. And then there's Connor Garland, who you said you really like. And he's actually the player I'm probably most interested to get your take on. Like Garland had that breakout season with the Coyotes in 2020-21, where he had 39 points in 49 games. That's a 65-point pace. And then in this season with the Canucks, his first with the team, he both started and finished like super strong. He had eight points in his first six games. And he had 16 points in his final 12 games. It's just the the middle part where the offense was very different he was below a half point per game player for those other i don't know count them up like 60 or so games in the end like what's your take on garland's first season with vancouver as we try to like project him for next year is it just like he's a streaky player and he'll go up and down like i see like his like lineup spot kept on changing he had a bunch of different line mates throughout the year like do we have a sense of like what he can do next year if he's going to have a more solidified role yeah so i'm just curious to get your general sense on garland and, and how every Everything was like so topsy-turvy all through the season. Yeah, I like Garland's first season. I think pretty much every forward, unless your name is Connor McDavid or uh, Leon Dreisaitl or, or JT Miller or, or one of those really elite players, unless you're that caliber of, uh, of an offensive creator, you're going to have ups and downs throughout the season. I mean, Horvat had ups and downs throughout the season. Uh, Pedersen was streaky. Besser was streaky. Uh, that's just kind of the nature of being a top six forward in the NHL is you're going to have moments where you're really hot and you're going to have moments where you're really cold. And I think on the balance overall, when you look at Garland's uh, impact, he was elite at five and five. There's no other way to put it where he was top 50 among all NHL forwards in, uh, in his point production, nearly all of his points came at even strength. And if you compare his five and five point totals, he was in the same sort of range is the likes of Miko Ranton and he had more five and five points than Sidney Crosby. Uh, there were some real star star level players who he eclipsed uh, in terms of uh, his five and five production. And I mean, Garland was tied with JT Miller for the team lead in uh, five and five points. And that's oh, there you go. really darn impressive considering Miller. I think he played three more games in Garland and, uh, and Miller uh, also logged a lot more minutes. So, for, for Garland, it wasn't just also the point totals, his ability to control play down low and, um, and, and just hold a lot of offensive zone possession. It ensured that the team wasn't spending much time in its own zone defensively without the puck. And so as a result, his two-way impact was really strong as well, despite him not having typical uh, traits that you'd associate with a strong two-way player. So you look at the underlying numbers, he was among the team's strongest play drivers when you look at his shot attempt differential, when you look at his five and five impact at helping the team control scoring chances. And people may look at that and go, ah, oh, that's just analytics, but that had a material decisive impact on, uh, on, on, at the end of the day, the, the scoreboard, where you look at his five and five goals for and against ratio, it was the best among all Canucks forwards at five on five. So to be quite honest, I think there's a case that Garland was better than Miller at five on five, even that Garland was the team's best five on five forward because he produced just as much with less opportunity. He was a more complete two-way presence in driving play. Uh, and the and I think the area of his game where you maybe look at is okay, this is where he's got to improve, is obviously the power play, right? Now, of course, part of that is lack of opportunity. He got very little time with the first unit. So uh, when you're not playing on the first unit power play, it's tough to really put up huge eye-popping eye point totals. You're never going to be a point-per-game player if you're not playing 
on uh, on the first unit power play. So that's um, that's something that maybe isn't in his control. But on the second unit, even I think he could have chipped in with more than just the three power play points he had. So that's obviously an area that I'm sure he'll want to improve on. Uh, but overall, when you consider what Garland brings to the table at even strength, I thought uh, he had a he had a solid first campaign in Vancouver. That's awesome. And definitely when you were like, well, it's only analytics. Like, that's definitely why we want to have you on this show. You're so great at breaking all of that down. And it's cool to hear that you say he was like at five on five, um, potentially the best player on the team. So obviously the Canucks are happy to have him. Do you think that there's a chance that he can get that top power play opportunity uh, at any point? Or are those spots kind of already, you know, taken? Like, I guess Miller, Horvat, Besser, Pedersen, he'd have to bump one of them. Yeah, it would depend on if the team moves, say, a, a JT Miller or a, or a Brock Besser in the offseason. Because if not, if it's just existing personnel that returns, then I have a hard time thinking uh, Garland would uh, find a way to crack the first unit. Right. Well, also, like at the end of last season, uh, it was Alex Chason getting top power play time over Garland. So maybe it was just in general, the coaching staff just not wanting to give him that shot. Yeah, Chason was, I think, originally just signed as a net front power play specialist. He's just done that year in and year out, which is obviously kind of odd. But uh, even going back to Edmonton, he'd play the first unit with uh, with McDavid and Drysaddle, and that's just kind of his thing. So um, it's a big reason why the, the team signed Chason. So that part wasn't too surprising to me. Right, I got gotcha. Okay, so yeah, something definitely to watch. It would be interesting to see like what Garland would be able to do if he did get like the same opportunities as JT Miller. If we'd be like starting to talk about them as as similar guys, but maybe that's not going to happen. Uh, so one contract that's currently not on the books for the team is uh, RFA Brock Besser, who unfortunately for him going into a contract season is uh, coming off one of his worst seasons, at least offensively, only forty six points in seventy one games. So that's a fifty three point pace if he played the full season, uh, and that's the lowest of his career, unfortunately, and and that that. That is after he put up that fantastic 72-point pace season in a fully healthy year, uh, the season before, well, 56 games, but like that was the full season. And it was actually looking even worse, like most of the way. Like Besser came back from injury and then put up eight points in his final seven games of the year to boost up those point totals. Otherwise, we'd be looking at a guy who paced for even less than 50 points. So any idea like why Brock Besser fell off, like what changed in his game in this like age 24, 25 season? For starters, I think Besser's just a pretty streaky player in general. And right. um, if you look at his trajectory year over year, he'll have some seasons where, let's say two years ago, Brock Besser was the Canucks' best forward. But then he'll also have seasons like this one where he'll he'll be unable to produce consistently, especially at 5-on-5. Five five. So I think when you step back and look at his campaign, obviously it was disappointing. I think the biggest uh, area of, of concern where maybe he didn't live up to expectation was the five and five production. I think in the first half of the season, some of that was a little bit out of his control in the sense that his on ice shooting percentage was super low, meaning that when he was in the ice, uh, him and his line mates just weren't able to bury chances um, at the sort of rate that they're used to. And it was an unsustainably low conversion rate, which you'd figure would, uh, would rebound over time. And a lot of that, that's just usually luck. So I think, I think that's a factor outside of his control that made his uh, inconsistent campaign uh, look even worse. I think part of it too was uh, Besser admitted at the end of the season that he was dealing with a lot away from the rink in terms of his father's health. And um, that obviously I think is a journey that's been well documented. And I, I think his father's health has really worsened. And I do know that that definitely weighed a lot on his mind. And at the end of the day, these athletes are also just humans and, 
I'm sure it must have been hard to have that same level of focus when you have um, a loved one uh, in that sort of precarious situation with their health. So I'm sure that was uh, a huge obstacle to overcome in his personal life. And then um, I'm sure with the team, just in the first half of the campaign as a whole, I, I think he was one of the players that really suffered from the team's conservative offensive style where under green in the first 25 games, they stopped for checking as aggressively. They wanted to play a more structured game. And again, that came with defensive benefits, but I think it also stifled the creativity and ability of uh, Besser to, uh, to create a lot offensively. And I think obviously when you look at his production in the second half, once, uh, once Brudro came, it, uh, it rebounded from that point. So I think there were a multitude of, uh, of reasons, of reasons why uh, he, kind of uh had a down year yeah i think that's all like super reasonable like you know he was lining up with elias Pettersson, who we already talked about also was slow to start the season so obviously besser is not going to be able to achieve his best production if like Pettersson isn't doing it also uh and also if and i guess if you're saying there was a bad like on a shooting percentage obviously that didn't help either of them and yeah this like human element like it's come up now this is the third straight interview we've done out of the three that like there's been players like obviously like you said like these are real people and they're affected by things and uh you know all the best to to brock's father and hopefully he comes into next season and is you know everything is going well for him in, in his life and he'll be able to like bounce back sounds like you're saying you're not too concerned uh, about like you know the down aspects of this year it sounds like you have like reasons that kind of explain away a lot of it what do you do now as the canucks like should they try to lock him down to like a long-term contract or maybe give him another one year like if you if you got that job that you should have had last off season uh what, what would you do with uh besser's rfa status right now yeah, it's tricky to, I think, come to terms on a long-term agreement just because of the $7.5 million qualifying offer and the leverage it presents. Now, of course, if the team signs uh, any extension, they don't have to pay him um, at, that, uh, at, that minim- at that minimal 7.5 rate, but it gives Besser's Camp a leverage point to where if Besser's Camp doesn't, uh, doesn't get a, a number that they like, well, they can just turn around and accept that qualifying offer at seven and a half million. And I think there are less than 50 uh, forwards in the NHL who make seven and a half million dollars. So that's a one, one sweet um, option to have in your back pocket if you're Besser's camp. So because of that, I think coming to terms on a long-term extension is a little bit tricky, especially because we're uh, still waiting to see how, where exactly his game sort of uh, lines up, right? Coming off of a down year, it's obviously going to affect perhaps how much confidence you have in uh, in investing in him, especially because he is a player that has had a track record of injuries. So I think there's got to be a medium ground, a middle ground there where you maybe look at uh, a two or three year extension. I, I wouldn't want to sign him for anything shorter than that in terms of just a one year resolution, because I would just kind of kick the can down the road and you'd kind of be facing the same problem again. I also don't think the trade route is particularly appealing right now unless uh, a team really steps up to the plate and offers what I would assume to be above market value because Besser's coming off a down season, right? And other teams, I'm sure, are also looking at that $7.5 million qualifying offer and how complex it could possibly be to come up, come up with an extension with Besser. And uh, and he's just straight up not as valuable as an asset as he was, say, compared to a year ago when he was uh, – 
Uh, I think he had 49 points in 56 games, and he was the Canucks' best forward at that time. And so I think a two- or three-year extension is the right approach where you're able to keep him in the fold and he's able to help you out now, but it also, you've still got the flexibility to where he can play for you. And then if you want to, let's say, move him at some point, you can rebuild his value, wait for him to have a, a good season again, and then trade him. And the acquiring team at that point too, would then have some term left on Besser's contract. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't have to be too worried about his, about his contract situation. So I think regardless of if you feel that Besser should be traded or whether you think that he's that he's he's a fit with this team, I think that uh, another bridge deal for me seems like a, a reasonable outcome here for both sides. Yeah, that's like very similar to the advice we give to people for their fantasy leagues in terms of like if you have a player who's slumping and you're worried about them, maybe it's not the best time to trade them because you're not going to get full value in return. Wait for them to have like a couple good games in a row. And then if you still don't believe in them, you could always trade them then and get, get something better back. Uh, okay, so I guess a couple other disappointments. Like I'm looking in terms of offense. So maybe you'll tell me like that these players actually played really well. Uh, but like Nils Hoaglander is one who we were like super excited about last year, actually in ter- talking about five on five points. Uh, this this year you're saying how Connor Garland was so good. Like uh, last season, it was Nils Hoaglander who like was so impressive. Uh, this year, overall, like not a very impressive campaign for Hoaglander. Only 18 points in 60 games before he went on the shelf with that groin injury that he ended up having surgery for. Uh, and then also Vasily Podkolzin, he had his first uh, season in the NHL coming from the KHL. And you totally called it in our interview last year saying we shouldn't be expecting a big offensive contribution from him. And you were definitely right in that regard because he only had 26 points in his uh, 79 games. So I guess taking them one at a time, did Hoaglander take a step back? Like he had such a great rookie season, really burst onto the scene in a way that most people weren't expecting him to. Uh, but then this past year, like there were basically you know hardly any points. Do we, do we blame this all on this groin injury? Like, do we expect him to be 100% uh, next year? What, what's the current status of Hoaglander? Yeah, the groin injury was just towards the end. So that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't really affect uh, his lack of production through the season. It, it wasn't like a lingering thing, you're saying? Yeah, no, it wasn't a lingering thing. It was just sort of a, a freak thing that happened in practice. I think uh, it will be interesting to see how it affects the timeline for training camp. I, I don't think that they're... I at least haven't heard of a concrete timeline for his, uh, his recovery. So it'll be interesting to kind of keep tabs on that. But in terms of the season that he had, definitely it was a step back, uh, whether it was the offense production or even looking at uh, the time on ice, he really didn't land a great first impression with Bruce Boudreau and under Boudreau, I think he was consistently 11th or 12th among uh, connects forwards in, uh, in time on ice under 12 minutes a night. So uh, just from an overall perspective, he went from being this uh, this lock, surefire top six presence going into this season to now we're kind of unsure about what exactly he is. Now, I'm not too concerned about him personally because for a few reasons. Number one, I think it's just part of the, the, the bumps in the road for how young he is. Uh, we forget, but Hoaglander wasn't supposed to make the team out of camp um, in 2021. Uh, He was, uh, we all expected that he was going to go down and play for a bit in the NHL and maybe he'd get a bit of a cup of coffee in the NHL a few games here or there, but that largely it was going to take him time. And so he was ahead of schedule. I think if you look at the 2019 draft class, there are less than five players, I want to say, outside of the top three picks in terms of Hughes, Kako, and um, 
and Kirby Doc, who've, who've played 100 NHL games. So Hoaglander is, as a second-round pick, already sort of way ahead of schedule. And when you're way ahead of schedule like that, it's going, you're not as polished, you're not as refined. Um, it's normal to have these growing pains in, uh, in development. And um, it happens all the time with top prospects. I mean, you look at even a JT Miller, and Miller had even more pedigree than Hoaglander as a prospect. Miller struggled for years with the Rangers. It took him so long to sort of figure it out. And I'm not trying to compare Hoaglander and Miller as, as prospects and say that they're similar in any sort of way. It's just an example of it takes time for prospects and success doesn't always come right away. So I think that's one important thing to keep right off the, to, to keep right off the bat. I think number two, the competition level, even for, for opportunity was a lot different than it was two years ago, two years ago when he came in for the 2021 season, he only had to beat out Jake Rutan and, and Louis Erickson to get a top six uh, role right, with, uh, right. alongside Bo Horvat. This year, you bring in Connor Garland. You bring in uh, Vasily Podkolzin, obviously came. Uh, you bring in Jason Dickinson. You now all of a sudden have three more top nine bodies that you're competing for minutes with. Uh, and so I think that, uh, that was a, a challenge in terms of just earning that opportunity. And then when you look at the actual season that he had and how he played, What's interesting is when you look at a lot of the microdata data that, say, uh, a Corey Sch- uh, Schneider tracked, Hoaglander was still among the team's leaders in generating five and five scoring chances for himself and his teammates, which I think is a really good sign. It's showing that he's at least creating opportunities, and it tells us that the lack of production is mostly explained by that uh, lack of finish by both himself and his line mates. Now, we know that finishing isn't the biggest strength in Hoaglander's game, but he was also a lot more cl- clinical in that area as uh, as a rookie season. And we also know that sometimes when you're lacking confidence, it can be difficult to sort of hunker down on those uh, opportunities that you had. But from an optimistic point of view, again, I mentioned Bastard's on ice shooting percentage. Hoaglander's on ice shooting percentage, I want to say at five and five was maybe right around the 6% range, maybe even slightly below meaning that goal, goalies, were, goalies were stopping pucks at a 940 um, save rate when he or his linemates were on the ice. And that means that it wasn't just Hoaglander and his lack of finishing ability, but the players that he was playing with were just unable to bury opportunities and that sort of diminished his ability to pick up assists as well. So from that standpoint, I think when he was on the ice, his line is also, again, some of it is is maybe a question mark of, of does he have the ability to finish? But there's also that element of even if he doesn't finish at that, even if he's not a good finisher, a 6% finishing rate is what you expect from just grinders with no skill. Um, what you'd expect from players maybe a decade ago who were just straight up enforcers with no skill whatsoever. And we know Hoagland's not that type of player. So he'll at least have some, I think, benefit from just I guess the, what I'm trying to say is, yeah, Holgrenner, the play in terms of his own finishing wasn't good enough, but his lack of production was made to look even worse than his play because he also didn't have bounces going his way. So um, I think all of that is to say that going into next season, hopefully he can hit the reset button. I think one of the most important things to watch for is going to be can he regain the coaching staff's trust? Because he's left a bad first impression. He didn't earn a lot, earn a lot of minutes. So from that standpoint, uh, he'll have to sort of change the coaching staff's perspective and uh, and my and mindset and work his way back into uh, 
a regular consistent top uh, top six role. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, you could expect the, you know, the bad luck in terms of the shooting success to bounce back. But if he's not playing in the top six, it's going to be hard to expect too many points. And right now I'm looking like we've got, you know, Miller, Pedersen, Besser, say, is a line. Then Horvat, you know, Tanner Pearson and Garland. And all of a sudden now there's no space for Nils Hoaglander. So I wonder if he'll need an injury to become like a really, you know, impactful contributor again. Uh, And then I guess Pod Colson. Uh, I I guess like uh, yeah I, I'd be curious to know and obviously offensively he didn't bring it but you didn't expect him to uh, but what did you think about his like two way play in terms of those types of contributions like I'm curious even in general now like how the Canucks are feeling about this pick that they made tenth overall in 2019 like obviously it's easy to nitpick in hindsight but you know there were some big names that broke out this year like Boldy who was picked a couple spots later Spencer Knight uh, Cole Caulfield do you think that they're hoping they had a do-over or do you think they were like really happy with what they saw out of Pod Colson and he gave them exactly what they expected? I think it was pleased. I think uh, the organization was pleased with this rookie campaign and 26 points. Again, I, I consider that uh, pretty successful for uh, a rookie season, given that Pod Colson wasn't drafted to be a superstar score 80 to 90 points uh, a season player. He was brought in to be a two-way power forward who adds so much value outside of just his offensive contributions. And we saw a lot of those elements in uh, in his game this season. And even when you look at his in-season progress and how much he improved from start to finish, it's, it's honestly remarkable the amount of improvement we saw with his two-way details. I remember at the start of the year, you could tell that he wasn't really comfortable with the smaller North American ice surface. He was second-guessing himself. Uh, in terms of his decisions with the puck, uh, in particular, trying to make plays on the defensive half wall on the breakout, he was uh, turning the puck over a lot in those uh, in those situations. Whereas you look at him now, towards the end of the season, he had so much more confidence in being adapted to the speed of the game, uh, the the less time and space, and he instinctually knew where his options and help were on the ice. He was acclimated with the the system a lot better. And then he had the confidence to not only am I going to make the simple play, I'm going to try uh, to make a skill play a little bit more often where I might uh, carry the puck a little bit through the neutral zone. I might drive it to the net uh, once in a while, once uh, I've got it off the rush. And we started to really see the faith and belief grow. And obviously when you look at his production, even uh, he really came on a little bit in uh, the second half once he had uh, some more opportunity with some of the injuries that uh, happened to players like uh, Pearson and uh, and Hoaglander. So he took uh, full advantage of that. And I really do see a player who plays such a mature style, never cheats for offense, uh, has a lot of strong defensive tools, is really strong on pucks, uh, wins a lot of battles, is uh, an absolute force on the forecheck. There's a lot to like with Pod Coles this game. That's awesome to hear. So I'm glad that the Canucks are happy. And yeah, I guess they have a lot of big scorers. So they definitely need like these types of players to help round things out and help out uh, Thatcher Demko, who uh, had himself a great season. So we could finish off in net here. This was Demko's, I guess, first year as a volume starter. He played 64 games, put up a 915 save percentage. But actually, like if you look deeper, like a few people we've talked about now, like Demko also started slow. He had two really rough outings in a row early in the season. He led in six goals versus Colorado and then seven versus Vegas. Vegas, uh, in, in around mid-November. But after those two games, if you just look at the numbers after that, he was actually a 9.19 save percentage goalie in the final 52 games he played in the year. And that put him only behind Shostyorkin, Kemper, and Sorokin, and tied with Markstrom 
for that save percentage uh, after November 14th, if, if anyone's curious. Uh, so gotta imagine there isn't too much to talk about with Demko aside from that he's a really good goalie and we should expect him to continue to be so, right? Yeah, he's an elite goalie, franchise pillar. He was their MVP, kept them in the in the game in, in in so many on so many nights where the team was being outshot and outchanced to oblivion and Weatherford mentioned too uh, towards the end of the season he was really honest about it that our goalie kept us in in a lot of games where uh, we uh, we were almost too reliant on him to a certain extent and we've got to improve the team in front of him and I think that's why. Uh, even the save percentage, I don't think necessarily reflects that 915, just how strong of uh, a season that he had. Even the the two games where you mentioned where he allowed a, a lot of those goals um, in Colorado and Vegas. I was on that road trip and yeah, those weren't Demko's best outings, but the team also um, in those games laid an absolute egg in front of them. Like I remember the Colorado game, they allowed that first goal and they straight up just didn't play for the rest of the game. It was um, honestly embarrassing, that road trip. Um, so point I'm trying to make is Demko is uh, he's <laughs> you, you run out of ways to almost describe how important he is. He's really their backbone and um, they're uh, really, really fortunate to have him uh, at 5 million uh, locked up for another few years here. Yeah. Like I, like I said, I didn't really even have a question really to come up with, with him. It's kind of like a hella buck a couple of years ago in Winnipeg, like just this guy that they really need to depend on in order to be successful. And, and he was up to the task. Uh, I guess we can quickly talk about the backup goal. I guess it's like not too significant since like Demko plays so much, but like, I'm curious to get your take on this guy, Spencer Martin, who came in for six games and was like amazing. He led in three goals in one of those games, two or fewer in the other five. But of course, six games is just six games. I see that they acquired him last summer from tampa for future considerations i don't even know like if they're if they ended up paying anything for him at the end of the day like is this uh spencer martin someone who might be able to get the role as the backup goalie for next season like i'd imagine they're gonna let halak walk uh are they good do you think to not sign another ufa and either roll martin as the backup or maybe you know if he doesn't work out they also have michael di pietro in the picture so what do you think is the current plan for the backup goalie next year yeah, I think the plans to have Martin back out next year. They already gave him a contract extension, and because of the Hopi buyout penalty, they need to be cheap in that uh, beyond just Demko. And in terms of what they spend on their backup, and Demko's proven that he can be a workhorse. So Martin was fantastic, as you alluded to in those six games. Obviously, a small sample size, but I think he's proven enough to have that have that shot and opportunity to back up next year. Okay, cool. So that'll be interesting to see. And what about Michael DiPietro? Like, is he still someone that we should expect to be a high pedigree guy? I see he's an RFA right now. Do you do we expect him to get extended? Like, he had a solid-ish, I guess, 901 save percentage in 34 games with Abbotsford of the AHL. Obviously hard to read into just a raw save percentage in, in the minors like that. Yeah, I don't think it was a great year for DiPietro. I think he... I feel bad for him because with, uh, with the 2021 campaign, he just didn't get a chance to play games. Um, he played very little in the AHL uh, as a result of being on uh, Vancouver's taxi squad. And when you miss out on all those uh, games in your development uh, arc as a, as a goaltender, it's, you just can't develop the same way, right? It's um, You can practice as much as you want if you're not able to apply what you're learning in a real game, uh, game setting, especially when you're that young in your formative uh, years and, and trying to build yourself up as a professional goaltender. I think that really set him back and 
it was definitely a really up and down uh, season for, for him. And uh, I, I don't know how the organization feels about him, to be totally honest with you. But uh, I, I mean, maybe he can bounce back. He's definitely got the mental fortitude for it. Not writing him off by any stretch of the imagination. But as of now, I wouldn't have the highest hopes for what he can do for the, for the Vancouver Canucks in the short term. Right, yeah. So good thing they got Spencer Martin. Uh, okay, and then I before you were just saying that uh, you know the prospect pipeline isn't too exciting right now outside of Jack Rathbone. So I know uh, I've already taken up so much of your time. I just want to make sure I don't you know miss the worst thing would be to like miss a player and then have that player make a huge impact next year. Then it's like oh how dumb was I for not bringing him up? So is there anyone that we haven't talked about? I guess like Jack Rathbone is he the main player that could be someone who makes a team next year and finally sticks around and has an impact as. Like someone new on the team? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think their only other top prospect is uh, Danilo Klimovich, but he's only 19, so he's he's got a lot of time that he needs to marinate in the American League. Rathbone's getting close to the point where it's make or break time in terms of ma- in terms of making the NHL. I think he's 23 years old now, and uh, similar to Di Pietro, it's been unfortunate where. As a, as a result of the pandemic uh, and the league shutting down as a result of injuries and, and COVID, he hasn't had a chance to play a ton of games um, over the last couple of years professionally, but he's still been able to, I think, log a lot of minutes um, this season despite that. And uh, down at Abbotsford, it was good for him, I think, to go down as opposed to just being a 6'7", who's in and out of the lineup at the NHL level. I think he was able to build some confidence, and uh, now it'll just be interesting to see if he can uh, break the team out of uh, training camp. Okay, yeah. Well, good luck to him, and I got, obviously that would be really helpful for the Canucks. Uh, Harmon, this has been amazing. It's always cool to talk to you. You're clearly one of like the best minds out there in terms of like analyzing hockey. Uh, I guess I just I need to ask you this since I have you on the line. Uh, it's currently you know we're almost down the first round of the NHL playoffs. Uh, as of this exact moment, we're at the end of the second period, and Pittsburgh's beating uh, the Rangers three to two. Then Dallas and Calgary will play their game seven later tonight. Uh, do you have a pick right now for who you think is going to win the Stanley? cup it's a really good question i i, I want to say colorado i think they're the best but i don't know if that's a cop-out just because everyone picks colorado so okay. <laughs> uh I'll, I'll say this another team i like is calgary i mean I, I they haven't given me a lot of uh confidence with how with how deep dallas has taken them but if i had to pick a number two maybe uh maybe calgary although maybe that changes with with how uh how they've looked in the playoffs so far i i don't know i just think colorado's the best team on paper in my opinion they're uh they're they're the team to beat even though tampa's looked uh tampa's looked like tampa i still think the lightning um are fatigued a little bit from their two cup runs i think at some point that'll catch up to them um obviously not in round one but perhaps deeper as you go into round two and round three um, and they've also got to get through Florida, who's also a juggernaut, as, as opposed to Colorado, where I think their path to the cup finals uh, a lot easier. So Colorado for me, I think. Okay. You're not too worried about St. Louis. They are uh, a pretty strong team. They, St. Louis they is a good team. Minnesota. They're, they're a good team. Um, they're a better team than uh, when Colorado dispatched them for sure. I think they can give Colorado a legit uh, run for their money, but I've, 
much prefer that matchup if I'm Colorado as opposed to, let's say, you're Tampa and you have to go up against Florida. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I'd love to talk to you more about this, but you've been so generous with your time. Thanks again for coming on for the third season in a row. Uh, everyone listening, you definitely want to be following Harmon on Twitter at HarmonDial2 and you know read all of his great work at The Athletic. I'll link to you know all of uh, you know his page on The Athletic in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else you want to let people know to check out? No, I think uh, that's about it. I've been doing so much, uh, so so much writing that I can't even think of one specific thing. So yeah, just uh, obviously my work's at the Athletic. So aside from that, uh, nothing. Yeah. Well, now that we're at the end of the interview, I could tell people that you could also have just read this awesome article of the nine takeaways and covered like most of the stuff we talked about. So uh, <laughs> you do a great job of uh, summarizing everything and making it super easy to like get up to speed with all, all of your thoughts. And yeah, you're great at talking about the game. It's always so fun talking to you. Hopefully we could do it again next year. Absolutely. Thanks so much. 